The extreme heat waves and droughts of summer 2022 affected hundreds of millions of people across the Northern Hemisphere and impacted water supplies, food production and natural ecosystems. And although exceptional, in a warming climate should these extreme events be expected. Hello and welcome to the MetAaron podcast. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. This episode, I'm speaking with Professor Peter Thorne, the director of the Irish Climate Analysis and Research Unit Group, and also a leading authority on climate science in Ireland. Professor Thorne and I spoke on the latest projections for climate change and the actions needed to reduce and potentially reverse its worst effects. So, We've just come out of what's been an exceptional summer for Europe and for the Northern Hemisphere when we think of uh, heat waves and uh, how warm it's been. How how extreme are they in comparison to what we normally get? So the, the kind of summers that we're seeing now would have been extremely unlikely in a pre-industrial climate, in a climate before we started adding heat-trapping gases to the atmosphere. And arguably, some of the values we saw, particularly breaking 40 degrees in the, in many parts of the UK, that arguably could not have happened without climate change. So we will more and more see sevens on the dice, not just waiting to throw sixes, but new new sides to the climate dice, things that we've never seen before. Okay, that's a good way to put it, sevens on the dice. And in terms of attribution there, then you're saying that it's sort of these conditions are more likely because of climate change. How do we attribute these sort of individual events or, or sort of seasonal events to climate change? How's the, how does that process take place? So, so it's a fairly complex statistical problem, but it, it, fundamentally, we have lots of these complex numerical simulations run on massively complex computers um, that we can use to get at this. So we can run a whole host of these with the forcings, the climate change that we have caused, the green, the heat-trapping heat gases, the particulates in the atmosphere, the other things that we have done to the climate. And we can run a whole host of them without that, mm. where we remove the human influence. And at a kind of fundamental, at a very simple level, it's a counting exercise. How many times in the set of simulations where we didn't have an influence on the climate, how many times do they occur in this? And how many times in this other set where we did change the climate do they occur? And that's fundamentally what event attribution comes down to with all the statistics removed. It, it's inherently simple and it's conceptually easy to understand in that sense. And it really comes down to time and time and time again, we cannot explain in particular heat events, either their frequency or their duration or their intensity without human influence. Human influence is making these more frequent, more likely. Okay, so these events, while they might be exceptional to us at the moment, really they shouldn't be unexpected, that they're they are following the predicted trends that we've seen from uh, climate modeling, for example. Yes, and if you look at the climate projections out towards the end of the century, unless we get a handle on our addiction to fossil fuels, by 2050, 
50, what with this last summer might be seen as typical, and even more frighteningly, by the end of the century, this past summer might be seen as unusually cool. That's down to us, fundamentally. As soon as we stop emitting heat-trapping gases, the climate will stabilise in terms of important things to our day-to-day lives, things like temperature and rainfall. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point because I, I see even, say, this last summer, which I believe Copernicus, which is the sort of the European Earth Observation Programme, it declared the last summer as the warmest ever seen in Europe. But the record that it bet was from last year. So we're seeing this year in, year out, these records being broken. As you say, this, this last summer, whereas it's warm to us now, it could be cool relative to what we might get in the future. And do we know if the extremes that we're seeing, how they may impact society going forward in terms of, say, for example, this year we saw increased wildfire, wildfires, increased uh, droughts and effects on food production and agriculture. I guess this is something that we could expect to see going forward also. Yes, and the Working Group 2 contribution of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is very clear about this compounding risks, which either means that you have weather events or climate events that occur in the same place but have a compounding effect, or you have multiple impacts simultaneously. For example, this summer and this spring, actually, we had multiple heat events across many of the major breadbaskets of the world, which will feed through this winter into food prices for you and me, but more importantly, will feed through to worsening and exacerbating food shortages for those in the global south in the developing world. And that's hugely problematic already. And everything about the projections says this will become a more frequent problem moving forwards. My my sort of uh, research background was in glaciology and I have friends who still work in that uh, community in Europe and this summer has been catastrophic for, for glaciers in, in Europe and one of the sort of the follow-on effects of that is you're losing a, a water reservoir where you have, if you've large-scale melting taking place during say these hot events when as you say we get more frequent warm and dry periods we don't have that water source that we can get uh, from melting water that's coming from the glaciers, not just here in Europe, but also in places that feed off the Himalaya, for example. Well, that, the, the, that last point is the key one. The third pole of the Earth, the Himalayas, is the water source to literally billions of people. And without the glacial meltwater, you would get se- highly seasonal flows, and you would get major, major implications for some of the most densely and highly populated areas in the world. And the rate that these glaciers are melting um, in many areas of the world raises huge concern. You mentioned the IPCC report there, and that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You are a lead author for the assessment reports that the IPCC produce, and uh, we're on the sixth cycle of those reports at the moment. We spoke in previous podcasts about the uh, some of the impacts and also some of the mitigation efforts that could be made for, for mitigating climate change. But the final report of this cycle, which is the synthesis report, is, uh, is due out hopefully uh, early next year and you have been actively involved in that. What is contained at the synthesis report? 
Well, so the synthesis report itself is is pre-decisional right now, which means I can't discuss precise words. But the synthesis report itself, its remit is to capstone the entire set. So its added value is to integrate across the reports that have preceded it. So there shouldn't be any fundamentally new science in there. What will be new is trying to integrate across the aspects that have been individually covered, not just in the three working group reports, but also the three special reports, the special report on 1.5, the special report on climate change and land, and the special report on oceans and, and the cryosphere and the changing climate. So this should be, if we do it well, and time will tell, watch this space on 20th of March next year, it should be an integrated and more digestible way of seeing the totality of the science that has already been presented in those underlying working group and special reports. Okay, so it's it's pulling together the information from, from the existing reports. And who is the synthesis report aimed at? Who's the target audience for that report? So it's really Foursquare aimed at policymakers, at governments. The chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is very keen that it's also readable by finance ministers. His background is in environmental economics and he says if you don't get the finance ministers signed on, nothing happens. It's money that unlocks things. And the Working Group 3 report, interestingly, is very, very firm on, on the fact that there is sufficient liquidity in the global financial system to address the mitigation challenge and arguably there also is the adaptation challenge. So we have the means to do this. It's not as if it's out of our reach. The other thing that the Working Group 3 report made very, very clear is everything we need to get beyond 50% reduction by 2030 exists. It's not dependent upon magical technology or magical thinking. We can do this across all of the sectors we need the political will, the societal buy-in, and we need to release the global equity to make it happen. That's that's very timely because we're just coming out of, of the recent COP meetings and, and one of the big wins from that was the provision of, of financial resources for helping countries adapt to climate change. But the focus seems to have primarily been on, or more so in, on adaption rather than mitigation. Would, be, would that be right to say? So the, the COPs are always set, if you like, by the presidency of the COP, which is the host country. And this is the first African COP for a long time. Loss and damage has been, at the, uh, has been a, a locked issue that has not shown any signs of progress for 30 years, since the very start of the COP process. The EU position unlocked that. Who was responsible for the EU position? Well, it was the Irish delegation and Minister Ryan, and I think they deserve enormous credit for unlocking the loss and damage. But you're right, the, there was very little in terms of new pledges, breakthroughs on mitigation. We remain on course with current ambition, somewhere north of two degrees. More worryingly than that, there's a gap, an additional gap, so there's this ambition gap, the sum total of nationally determined contributions, those declarations of what countries intend to do, do not add up to staying below two degrees. But even more worryingly, there's an implementation gap. 
many countries, including our own, do not have the policies in place to meet their ambitions. If you look at what's actually implemented, we're on course for somewhere around three degrees by the end of the century. This this time last year, we, we were discussing the, uh, the COP26, as it would have been. And, and at that time, it was the goal to to keep, if we can keep the goal of, of 1.5 degrees alive. And I hear you talking about, about two degrees Celsius. Is, is the idea of 1.5 degrees, is that is that rapidly becoming unrealistic? So... It really depends what you mean by 1.5. If you mean keeping climate forever below 1.5, quite frankly and honestly, it's dead. If you mean 1.5 and going a little bit over, called overshoot, but returning quite rapidly, that's very much alive. So 1.5 with low overshoot is alive. But current policy takes us well beyond that. And overshoot matters. There's a world of hurt difference between keeping below 1.5, 1.5 with low overshoot or 1.5 with high overshoot. So how far you overshoot and how long you overshoot will have detrimental impacts upon the climate during the period of overshoot, but even beyond that, because aspects of the climate system such as sea level remember they have long, long memories. And so it will really matter what we do. I think the an analogy that would be useful is if when I'm driving home, if I get distracted and I miss the junction for Edenderry, that doesn't mean I have to drive on, go on the M6 and get to Galway. I can come off at the next junction and, and waggle my way back home. That's the equivalent of limited overshoot or low overshoot. Okay, it's disruptive, it's not what you want to do, but you know, at the end of the day, it's relatively simple. High overshoot or just continuing on means getting to Athlone or getting to Galway before you even try. It's much more painful, it takes a lot longer, it costs a lot more. And that's kind of fundamentally where this is all needing to go. We need to recognise that we're taking loans for future generations at this point in terms of the hurt that they are going to see. That's, yeah, that's a really good analogy. And and when we're thinking of that period where we're in overshoot, are the concerns there in terms of, I know you've mentioned, say, the, the memory that's stored in the oceans. And we also consider things like climate feedback, such as uh, snow ice, albedo feedback, things like that. Or, or I guess the longer that we spend in this overshoot, the greater we have a chance of, of maybe passing some tipping points in relation to those. Well, exactly, all of, the, all of those types of things. So there are different things that will matter in overshoot. There are some aspects of the climate system that basically uh, respond to, what, to the perturbation that we're putting into the system. So things like temperature and rainfall, physical parameters will just scale up and down with how much we've changed, monkeyed with the climate system effectively. Then there's the whole host of other things that kind of integrate for a period of time. And then there are things that integrate for a very, very long time. The great ice sheets, the oceans. But there are things that might happen in Oversheet that might not even be obvious until we've returned. So think of a forest. 
which might be fully functional at the at 1.5, but might not be functional at 1.7, may not reproduce at 1.7. Well, you might go to 1.7, come back to 1.5 and think you're fine, and then wonder 100 years later why the forest is dying. Well, the forest is dying because you stopped its reproduction cycle. So there are many things that we don't understand. What we do understand about overshoot is the further and the longer you overshoot and return, the more things will have fundamentally changed in the overshoot period or as a result of the overshoot period. So you do not get back to the same point. It, looking maybe closer to home in, in Ireland, uh, a country you know, with relatively temperate climate, are we in some ways insulated from the worst effects of climate change? I mean, I know geopolitically we'll all feel the effects of climate change, but say in terms of temperature rise, what can we expect to see by the end of the century, for example? So Ireland's temperature historically has scaled pretty much one-to-one -one with the global temperature, and I would expect that to continue. So the oceans are warming slower than the land, and the very high-latitude Arctic is warming fastest on the entire world. And if you look at the projections, that just increases in its darkness of its hue with every increment of warming moving forward. So fundamentally, what we see, we might see more of in a warmer world. Everything, The things that matter to us, as I said, in our day-to-day -day lives will scale. But we live in a global interconnected world. And we can only insulate ourselves so far from that interconnected world. So it will increasingly matter what happens. We already arguably see forced migration due to climate. We already see food implications, other implications that will have ripple effects. We've seen with COVID, we've seen with the, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, that things happening far away have consequences. There is no reason to believe, in fact, we would be mad to believe that climate events far away would not have ripple effects back to us. And again, the IPCC in Working Group 2 is very, very clear on this compound risk. So staying close to home, you yourself are the director of the Irish Climate Analysis and Research Unit. So that's based in Maynooth University better known as the Icarus uh, group. And could you explain to me what the, what the mission of Icarus is? So Icarus really is, is a collection of uh, some of the foremost academics in the country in the, in the space of climate science, the physical science really, but also the adaptation science. And our, our mission, if you like, is to do the po best possible science and to have impact upon policy that results from that science. Um, we're, we're, we're the sum of the individuals who are there and their own expertise and their own, uh, their own particular preferences as to where they develop their own careers. And in terms of those individuals and those individual experts, what kind of, can you give a sense of what kind of research broadly is taking place there? So it's all the way from the deep past with our colleagues who work on paleoclimate, which is looking at proxies, things that have changed with climate. So prior to about 1800, we don't have any instrumental record of climate in Ireland, along with most of the rest of the world, to be blunt. What we do have an abundance of is proxies, things that we know change with climate, things like 
in a good year, a tree will put on a lot of mass and the tree ring will be wide. And in a bad growing year, it will be narrow. It will not grow very much. So we can use things like tree rings or peak cores and aspects in those to really reconstruct the past climate in enormous detail. So we go from that through instrumental, which is my personal area of expertise, to the future with projections. We've got people looking at oceans, um, atmosphere, land surface processes. So it's a really rich variety of individuals. Is there a piece of research or work from Icarus that you are particularly proud of or that stands out to you when you think of, of the good work that's been done there? I mean, I'm sure there's lots, but is there something like a particular piece of research that really resonates with you? So I, I guess what I'm most proud of is some of the papers that we've got from the master's program over, over the years, either papers written by the class as a whole or papers arising from an individual thesis. So we, earlier this year, we had a paper arise on very old records that we found in the island of Indian Island, Ocean Island of Mauritius, which found an amazing record of 20 plus years of parallel measurements of temperature that had been undertaken by pioneer scientists and had long been forgotten. And uncovering that and documenting that is really, really key. And then there's a paper that's about to appear um, that that tries to that tries to re-examine the Kilkenny National Heat Record. Um, that was written by the entire class, but we used WMO recognised methods, and it was really interesting and exciting to see the class do that. And we have a new project with this year's class, which is trying to work with Medair and to to rescue some data that you found in the 1800s. And I'm going to be really interested to see how that develops. So yes, to me, the, re the ones that excite me are the ones where I see early career researchers, be they masters or PhDs, pulling through new science, new insights. That excitement that you expressed there, is that something that has always been with you? Is, is, is climate something you've always wanted to work in? Or is it something that you found yourself progressing towards through your career? I was a very sad kid when I was about <laughs> 10 or 11 years old. I would watch the TV, the TV weather on one channel and switch to the next channel to watch it again on the next channel. Um, I've always wanted to work in environmental sciences. Um, I knew that from a very early stage um, and I took university progression and other progression that's finally ended up landing me in Ireland and at Maynooth University. With that passion that you have for climate science and considering what we've discussed and, and how important things are at the moment, do you see a role for scientists as activists? I mean, can scientists or should scientists, particularly in climate, be activists? I think that's inherently a personal choice. I would hate to see someone say you can or you can't. It's got to be what you feel comfortable with and you have to you have to recognize that your choices may open or close doors, may alter what roles you can or can't take. I think it would be very hard for me personally as an IPCC author, as a member of the Climate Change Advisory Council to be an activist, nor would I want to be an activist. I think there's 
a role for activism in terms of raising awareness. But where I personally can can make the most difference is in trying to clearly communicate the science to the public, to interested audiences, to politicians, to policymakers. That's where I can personally make a difference. If I started walking on the streets raising placards, that ability for me would be diminished and that would not be a valuable outcome. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense in terms of positioning yourself in what role is going to be most effective for your skill set and for your uh, interests as well. Whether or not there's a valid argument for, say, some radical climate action, and we see recently events, things like uh, works of art being defaced and things like that, and how much controversy that or that that generates. But I suppose the question is: Is it really that radical when we consider? what the outcomes could be from uh, from a, a climate system that uh, where insufficient action is taken. Yes, so so it's it's really interesting. One of the things that we've been grappling with or thinking about for the last three years is the parallels between the climate crisis and COVID. COVID was somewhere where every day the numbers were a news story, where everything was moving really, really quickly. The problem with climate is that climate, is hap- climate change is happening and it's having severe impacts, but it's not something that's affecting people in a day-to-day basis. So the urgency, the communication of the urgency is that much harder, keeping people's attention, making things happen. So I would not choose to be an activist, but if someone feels that's the role that they can fulfill and they feel passionately about it, I'm not going to tell them they can't. But yes, it's really interesting to think about the parallels between these various things that have happened, Ukraine invasion, and how quickly we've responded to that. And then you look at how slowly we respond to climate change, and you think, well, why? We know we're giving this to our children and our grandchildren. We know we have it in our power to stabilise the climate system within the lifetime of today's junior infants. But that's our choice, not today's junior infants' choice. How will they look at us when they're 60, 70 years old? I guess that's a function as well of our nature to react more strongly to the things that are affecting us immediately, short-term pain, and also the nature of how cyclical our political system is as well when we're dealing with short-term election cycles, that um, it's it's the nature of things to to focus on quick wins and on impacts that people will feel immediately. Absolutely. And in many cases, framing things as climate is actually unhelpful. Framing renewable energy as energy independence and income stream and job creation within the country far better. Why do we frame the agriculture in terms of methane emissions? Why do we not frame it in terms of market opportunities, diversification, risk reduction? Think of a future where we might have a novel virus come into the cows. I can guarantee you what would happen is we would cull the national herd. And we would decimate rural Ireland overnight, whereas if we diversified rural Ireland, if we made novel markets that farmers could produce into that would produce things other than milk or beef, 
well, we'd have a diversified Ireland. And oh, by the way, you've reduced your methane emissions by 30%. Making the target 30% methane reductions and reducing the discussion every time the media frame climate change action by the third question, what about the cows, makes climate change somebody else's problem. And it is key to be clear, it's all of our problem. Effective mitigation requires us all to act. Agriculture is the largest emitting sector, but it is if, even if we got agriculture to net zero, we'd still have almost two-thirds of our emissions to account for. So it is not the farmer's problem alone. It is all of our problem. We all need to act across all sectors and across all of society. And that reframing as well, th that reframing is such, a, is such an important thing where we, we're looking at the local and personal problems and benefits that can come from action. And it ties in with the importance of optimism as well. Like, Do you consider optimism to be important when dealing with the climate question? So the two key words in the climate, in the climate debate right now, from my point of view, are urgency and agency. It is urgent that we do something. We no longer have the luxury of waiting. We already are seeing impacts that are very, very marked in many parts of the world. It's only a matter of time before the roulette wheel stops on Ireland. So there is absolute urgency, but there is agency. There are solutions. Many of them are win-win solutions. For example, by chance, because of the housing crisis, we had to move. We had to move. We bought a property that is A2 rated. We bought a property that has solar, solar hot water panels, five kilowatt solar array, and a heat pump. What energy crisis? We have two electric cars. In the summer, and it was in the summer, and it wasn't with the 200 euro government reduction, our total energy costs for everything, not a fossil fuel in sight, 300 euros for two months. That includes driving probably four or five thousand kilometers. There, were pe there would be people who would have put more, more than that into their car tanks in terms of petrol and diesel alone within that period, probably considerably more. So these things made us independent of the fossil fuel crisis. So why aren't we framing these win-wins? Why aren't we going for these things really, really as hard as we can? It, the solutions are there. It needs the political will, the, the, the social buy-in. But we can make it happen. And, and facilitating, I guess, a, a broader spectrum of society to be able to achieve, the, to achieve that energy independence that, that you've been able to achieve. Absolutely. So at the moment, one of the problems with it is that the government helps at the moment, quite rightly, the very poorest who cannot afford to participate. But the current structure of grants is actually inequitable because what it does is makes it accessible to the likes of me, but not to the majority of the population who have sufficient income to not avail of the government's will pay for everything help but do not have sufficient income or, or savings to participate in the grant award systems. 
And we need to find a way to unlock the potential of that, in Fina Gale speak, squeezed middle, to participate in this. We need to think about ways that we can make cost-effective loans available and attractive to them to participate to what extent the government might pay for part of it. But we need to stop giving just these grants that facilitate the very richest in society to participate and that is inequitable because it actually increases, exacerbates existing inequalities within our society. We need to avoid that. We need to really get clever in letting, enabling the middle income earners of this country to participate and to benefit from this. When you look at issues like that that have solutions um, but will require effort to put through and when you look at say the broader challenges that we face do you, you yourself carry a sense of optimism for the future i so i have ha had a unique opportunity in ireland to participate since arriving in the country to participate in the citizens assembly to participate as an expert advisor to the oroctus committee on climate action and then to participate in the climate change advisory council and i do believe fundamentally, that there is broad-scale political agreement across the political spectrum in Ireland about need for action. And I do believe that our political system is fundamentally at a, a, a fit for purpose to actually respond to this. So I have some optimism that we, if, if we can't do it in Ireland, it's not going to be possible almost anywhere in the world. We have almost unique opportunities um, in terms of the mixture of energy sources we could use, in terms of our, uh, our liquidity, our political system, we have a unique opportunity. If we can't do it here, it's really hard to see how it can be completed anywhere. And we have an opportunity to show real leadership and to be a shining beacon. And that will lead to huge benefits for Ireland, both tangible and intangible. Well, I would say thank you for the, the times and, and, and effort that you've put into your work here in, in the time that you've spent in Ireland, both in research and in directing policy, or at least in encouraging the, the direction of policy in the right direction. And uh, I know that you're very busy, so really appreciate you coming in today and giving us your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. That's all for this episode. My thanks again to Professor Thorne for joining us. I really appreciate his insight and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks also to the team here at the podcast studios for keeping everything running smoothly. As always, if you've any thoughts or questions on today's episode, be sure to get in touch on Met Aaron's social media channels or drop an email to podcast at met.ie. And if you're not already subscribed, you can do so wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. I'm looking forward to speaking to you next time. <laughs>